Greetings, and welcome to Montessori in Action, a podcast for Montessori educators to remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host, Elizabeth Slade, and let's spend some time listening to what is in the hearts and on the minds of other Montessorians. Our final episode for this season of Montessori in Action podcast is a conversation between two seasoned educators discussing Montessori and special education. In this expansive conversation, they talk about the points of tension and how to support Montessori educators in navigating this in their classrooms and with families. Please join me in welcoming our guests, Andre Rolf and Allison Jones. Andre is an educational consultant with 35 years of experience in public special education as a teacher, diagnostician, and administrator, and 10 years consulting with Montessori schools. Allison is a consultant for Public Montessori in Action and holds an AMI primary and elementary diploma. She was a Montessori child from preschool through sixth grade and grew up with a fervent love for Montessori learning. Please welcome Andre and Allison. Thanks, Elizabeth. It's such a pleasure to be with two of my favorite people, uh, Elizabeth Slade and Allison Jones. Same here. Um, let me start by giving a brief introduction. And you know why I'm doing this podcast? Um, I do not purport to be an expert in special education. I have spent over 30 years in the Montessori world um, and about five years working as um, a special education director for a public charter school. So my areas of expertise when it comes to special education are how to um, implement interventions when it and um, and services for students when working in a school that has control over their things that's their own local educational authority. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And how about you, Andre? What's your connection with this work? Well, I bring uh, over thirty-five years of practice in public special education, where I worked as a teacher, a child study team member, a diagnostician, and a special education administrator. Um, Then I made the leap into the Montessori world, and for the past 10 years, I've been working with Montessori schools at the interface between special education and Montessori education. I truly believe we can serve more children well, and I devote my efforts to helping guides and schools do that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Wonderful. And I was chuckling, Allison, when you said 30 years, because I know you were a Montessori child. Our listeners might not know that piece. You might think that you and Andre are age mates, which you're not, no. Um, but you got to jump. You got an early start on your connection with Montessori. So great. And I, I'm one of those latecomers to Montessori. There are a number of us out there, people who have spent their careers um, outside of the Montessori community and have come to realize that we have something important and urgent that we want to share. So we come in later on. We come to training um, at a more advanced age than most. Um, And we're very, very intense about 
sharing what we have with the community. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, uh, we think of that as being bicultural, you know, sort of having a, a sort of traditional public school background and having a Montessori background and thinking of how we're serving all children by holding both of those. And what's exciting is that also leads to um, tension. And I was hoping we could launch off the conversation by talking just wide open at the top of the conversation. What are the tensions that exist between Montessori education and special education? Sure. When I came into Montessori, uh, the first thing I noticed and bowled me over was the fact that we had many of the same goals. And to me, that boiled down to the right lesson for the right child at the right time in the right environment. Uh, With all of my years in special education, it also became very clear to me that there were areas of tension um, where there are differences and that it's important to know what those tensions are so that you can resolve them. So I see five main areas of tension. Um, At the top, the models are different. Montessori model is developmental. Um, It is constructivist. The special education model comes out of the medical model and is often considered more behaviorist. Another tension is an attitude toward inclusion. In Montessori, we're talking about the human imperative for inclusion, and in special education, we're very focused on the legal imperative for inclusion. Language can be very different. I love the Montessori language of reverence, and that is juxtaposed with all of the special education terms and acronyms that can be very daunting for anyone um, to use with children in a Montessori setting. Uh, Fourth would be delivery. I think that's the biggest difference in orientation. Um, Montessori education is so beautifully indirect and special education is very direct in terms of delivery. Um, We're often looking at choice versus goal-driven direct instruction. Um, And those can be very different to the practitioners. And the last area would be us in assessment, where Montessorians are so trained and seasoned in observation. Special education is often always looking at demonstrated mastery of specific goals under specific conditions. Um, And that's a fifth area where tensions can arise. Mm Wow, I was like over here taking notes. I might actually post them in the show notes. That was wonderful. Um, Allison, you want to jump in on the uh, thoughts about everything Andre's raised and more? Yeah. Thank you, Andre, for that. That was so concise and illustrative and actually sets me up for my view of the tension as tension being somewhat of a misnomer. I think that the question is a little bit bigger and has to do with your definition of special education and your definition of Montessori. I think those tensions arise when people 
hold tightly to narrow views of both. But I think the works that we have to serve children is to build a bridge between the two. Um, some of that involves translation. Often we're talking about the same thing, but in different words. And some of that involves broadening our sort of like our mindset and way of thinking about children and their needs in a way that I don't think is outside of the realm of either model. Um, one example, some of my favorite conversations over the last um, five to 10 years have been with a colleague who's training to be a board certified behavioral analyst, which is a very behaviorist model for serving students with special, with, uh, with special needs. There's a whole conversation about that, not, not in the scope of our podcast today. But what's interesting about this is that we often have conversations where I'll say, well, this is what the child needs. And she'll say, well, this is what we call it in my world. And we came to know that it's actually not a duality. It's a spectrum from constructivism on one end all the way to behaviorism on the other to the most loose, like, follow the child, let them explore friendliness with error to tighter and tighter and tighter isolation of difficulty until you get all the way to the other end. And our job as educators is to figure out where children fit in that spectrum. So that's sort of the view that I've taken in it, that the two meet in the middle. We just need to work to make that meeting and also to figure out how much like tightness children need in order to be successful. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're working with the tensions um, or creating a lack of tension by keeping the focus tightly on the child and figuring out where does the child belong, not which of our beliefs is going to drive what the program is for this child, but what does the child need and that you figured out uh, peers that are willing to engage in that dialogue, right, to let go of our sort of tightly held beliefs about how it must be on either end. And therefore, it doesn't need to be tension. It just needs to be an open conversation. 100%. Together, we have this amazing, very toolbox that we can use in service of the child. And that's really the work. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me, having been in a number of schools, that part of the issue there is making sure there's time created for those conversations to happen, that people are coming from their very distinct viewpoints. And where is the, the time and space to find those um, that spectrum you're talking about, Allison, and that middle ground thinking or that um, you know targeted um, action plan for so-and-so um, within the life of a school? One of the things I notice, um, particularly in dealing with guides who are new to their work is that out of training, people often believe that they will serve all the needs of the child, that that is their role. And special education people believe that they're coming in to fix what is the matter. And so the first meeting of minds that needs to happen is that very entry point of collegiality that what we can do together in the service of the child will accomplish more than what either of us can do alone. Uh, I think that's a real key factor for um, progress and for uh, having the environment fit the child. 
all this is leading us to be thinking about Montessori guides and what they need to serve children with learning and behavioral differences that bring challenges. And part of the challenges are, are to those Montessori guides, um, you know, that our, our children are appearing and presenting as they are. And what do guides need in order to um, tru- truly embrace every learner, to see the unmanifest potential of all children? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, I can start. My first thought is that Montessori guides need to keep their constructivist asset-based lens. They need to continually be ask themselves, what's going on with this child? They have a strong observational practice, which is valuable, which again, like back to the tensions, doesn't line up in terms of speaking with the way that special education thinks of data collection, but also brings valuable information. And the first thing that they need to do is keep that. Um, The second is that one of the things I see happen often in Montessori environments is that Montessori guides come out of training with this beautiful vision that's real and works. But then when they're confronted with the children in their classroom, they start to say, my vision goes up to here and then it ends and these children are beyond it. So there's also a step of partnering with people who are in your environment or reaching out so that you can look at all of your children with that same constructivist asset-based lens, which is work. That is the work of years. I think that information that is key for guides is knowing the implications of disabilities across the planes of development. Um, Through our culture, we have a lot of information about some challenges that children may have, Um, at least a, a starting point about attention challenges, um, reading challenges, um, even now as opposed to 10 years ago, guides are more aware of the kind of challenges children might have if they exhibit autism spectrum disorder um, symptoms. But there are many other challenges that children may have that guides generally don't have a lot of information about. And it, when I teach in new guides at Loyola in the summers, often the students would say, well, why didn't I learn about this in my training? And my response is, well, this is an extension of your training. And your, your training was about the principles and the practice of Montessori education. Um, I could not do what your Montessori trainers did, and your Montessori trainers don't have the background in special education to be able to infuse that information in your learning. Also, I don't think that new guides are ready for that information. Um, the, The foundation comes first, and then we layer on additional information. Um, So back to the notion of implications about disabilities across the plane of development, there are so many challenges that children might have, and we 
guides need to know what those are about, what they look like, what you can do about it. What, what does an auditory processing disorder look like in a four-year-old? What about a, a, a 10-year-old? You know, what about an adolescent? Um, when a first child with uh, selective mutism comes into a Montessori environment, that is an enormous surprise for everybody. And, and what the adult does can really um, be very, very important to the outcome for that child. Also, in terms of disabilities, what about children with medical disabilities? Um, how, how do we serve a child with diabetes and what is that going to look like educationally as well as mentally? So that kind of information needs to be infused forever. Um, and it's an ongoing process and it can happen in schools where the organization itself gets ready to be current in what's out there in special education. Um, one person can say, I'm going to focus mostly on dyslexia, or I'm going to focus more on what's new in the, in the field of a, attention deficit, so that it's a lively, ongoing process of learning for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautiful. And I'm imagining in and around that, Allison, your mind is popping with the kind of structures that need to be in place in a school. Do you want to talk a little bit about providing access to interventions and accommodations? Definitely. And Andre, please pop back in to help support this piece as well. Um, I'll start by saying I love that idea of developing specific expertise you know, a lot of the time we as educators think we need to know everything or nothing. And we have a really hard time uncovering our own blind spots, which is what we what we don't know we don't know that we could use to serve children. Um, and so that sort of jigsaw approach could be really helpful. Um, I also think that one thing that guides need are external structures to support that having you know people whether they work for the school or whether they're on call who can be available to provide information counsel um, around interventions accommodations having a structure where guides sit down and talk to each other and talk to their coach if they have one about what's going on with a child what we can try and learn more about that um, quantitative data collection that is so much the strength of special education to use that to know when they need to escalate. Um, often, you know, as human beings who work with children who we love, our emotions are not a good indicator of what's actually going on. But if we can, if we have a school-based structure to collect data and make decisions around children, um, it can actually be really helpful for keeping that asset-based lens I was talking about as well as the additional information because yeah in order to be able to see what's going on you need to have the base information to be able to make that analysis mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah that was a nice jumping off of what andre was saying about like having basic information about what are the different um, pieces that are 
within the school, like you mentioned a few of them, Andre, attentional issues, and, and there's the vast executive functioning pieces. I think you m- mentioned just one medical, but that, you know, that's a lot. So taking that in and then having systems and structures and people that can continue to resource the classroom guide around what's going to be helpful and what may actually not have impact um, in the way that we're hoping for, along with a system and structure for data collection to see is this working. Um, and I love that you mentioned like the emotional aspect of being human, that we are, you know, not very good at being able to assess the situation separate from the feelings, right? So the data really helps with that piece. Um, what other ongoing support for the guides um, come to mind for either of you? I do a lot of my work in independent schools um, where there often is not a special education staff. So what's important in those schools is that the vision of the school um, includes the notion of who will be included in our school community and what will it take to support children who need um, the right kind and the right amount of intervention. Um, Those schools can form their own student support teams no matter how small the school is. It's it's doable in in a tiny independent Montessori school. But um, building on Allison's use of the term bridges, building bridges to the community so that every school has on tap a speech language therapist, an occupational therapist, a social worker, um, a behaviorist who can be consulted uh, to help support children or come to bring information to the staff about how it is that you might support a child given the makeup of the school and and given the um, expertise of the people who are there. It's a different challenge than a school that has a special education staff um, and it it can be done. It takes um, time, energy, and people who are ready to say, this is what we need, how can we find it, and how can we make it um, a part of what we do here? Yeah, building on what you were saying, Andre, that takes me back to um, my original comment around translation. Part of that is successfully negotiating translation, even for students who have you know, their own private therapists come into the classroom, our Montessori guides are not adequately prepared to have that conversation. Uh, You know, even a a crash course on here are some of the things that the person might be looking for. Here's how you explain to them how that shows up in your classroom. And here are some of the, the ways that you can come to a solution that works within the context of your classroom and also meets the needs and expertise of that, um, of that therapist. Uh, as a leader in a charter school, one of the things I learned quickly that helped the best was to look for the people who had already somewhat crossed the bridge on both sides. So look for 
for the people, the occupational therapists, the behaviorists, the um, speech language pathologists, who were already sort of looking at things from a somewhat of constructivist lens. And therefore, I could sort of bring them into, here's how it's structured in the classroom here, some, and to innovate together. Um, so if there is anyone out there who has charge of their own environment, interview folks. There are a lot of folks out there. They have widely variant points of view. And then the last part there is that I think guides in everyone, but especially on the on the especially on the Montessori side, when we're trained to, you know, use our constructivist lens to transform children's experience. In this world, it's a long game. It's I, I think one of the things that I struggled with the most um, as a Montessorian become special education leader is that I, I could, we were making a difference, but it was not fast. It was something that happened over the course of years. And that was new to me and it was new to the guides who were working with me. So there were many points in the middle where we would feel like this is just not working. Um, and so that's when we went back to the data. We were like, let's look at how many times this happened in September and how many times it's happening now. It feels the same, but actually we're moving forward. So let's stay the course. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I have so many things popping into my head, but one thing that came up when you were talking, Allison, about translation, um, and this actually pinged earlier, Andre, when you were also talking about ensuring that Montessori guys have the language and know and understand what the different pieces are is I was at a school recently talking about um, a tool that we used to use to prepare Montessori guides for special education IEP meetings, um, especially if it's the first time they've ever been, like what's on the checklist, like a simple tool of like what to bring and then working with the coach to kind of rehearse so that there's some translation language that they're already using. Um, and this came out of a need of being in a public Montessori school where the Montessori guys were dismissed as not knowing anything. And partly it was how they were showing up in these meetings, right? Um, and that we just, we didn't have the, the bridged language yet to be able to come to a meeting and speak in a way that was um, recognizable to the, the practitioners or the person that was developing the IEP. Um, and that led to stronger IEPs that had more um, push in and less pull out, that had more services in line with how we might do it in a public Montessori program. Um, so yeah, getting a simple tool of a checklist and ensuring that the guides have the support they need for those identification meetings and then those ongoing annual reviews and so on, that if they're supposed to bring something, they know well in advance what it is, they know how to do it, they're getting support all along the way. Allison, did that bring up something for you? That calls back our ongoing conversation about structures, um, what that looks like in different environments. You know, you're talking about a structure, I assume, in a public school when, you know, Montessori folks are going to meet with a central office of special education folks who don't actually spend a lot of time in the school setting. And I feel like in some ways this is replicated in the private sector, except when folks come in, the folks who come in aren't aren't even centralized. It's sort of whoever's connected to the family or whoever the school is able to reach out to. And so those structures become even more important. And the thing that I want to 
highlight here are structures when it comes to analysis of what's going on with the child. Something I hear a lot are, are people saying, which disabilities can we serve and which disabilities can we not serve? And that's a false framework. Um, that is actually not the question. Um, the question is, do we have the resources either it, or can we build them in terms of knowledge, people, etc., to serve this child in our setting? Yeah, and maybe in public, it's how will we serve? Not do we, but how, what do we need to serve? When I'm working with teachers to determine goals, what we, what we want to work on next, um, I think it's really important to think about what you want the child to be ready or to be able to do um, next, as opposed to what will this look like when all the issues the child has are resolved. Um, we're going to do this now so that later the child can join our community meeting for the whole time. We're going to do this now so that eventually they will be um, reading text independently and writing about it. Um, it is, there is a long time. And for me, one of the, the gifts of Montessori is three years in one environment. It all doesn't have to be done by October. And amazing things happen over a period of time. And um, that's really, really critical to planning support for a child, that it, the progress is reviewed often, that the goals are measured in some way, and that one follows the next. Um, and over time, you can see an arc of progress, which may not even be on your radar screen in the first three months of working with a three-year-old. But when they're eight, you can look back and say, look what happened here. And I, and I just have to say, Andre, that that is so Montessori. I know you know that it's so Montessori, but I just want to highlight for our listeners that that is what we do. We know how to do that for three-year-olds with spoken language. We know how to do that with lower elementary children for division or the development of independence of the cosmic curriculum. And it goes back to what you were saying about um, having tools and knowledge, because the reason we can't do that for um, in the area of you know, student support or disabilities is that often we don't have those tools and that knowledge. And so that just sort of brings the bridge building all back together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So before we jump into our last meaty question, I was hoping you'd offer the listeners some thoughts about how we should be using the term neurodiversity within our curriculum, because we're just about to talk about conversations with families. And it seems like if we got calibrated about the term neurodiversity before we launch into that, that would be helpful. Well... I know that neurodiversity is a term that seems to be easily embraced by the Montessori community. Um, it feels Montessori. 
as opposed to the word disability, which feels judgmental. Um, and it's important that people understand what neurodiversity means. It's really a perspective asserting that atypical or neurodivergent neurological development is a normal human difference and that it is to be recognized and respected as any other human variation. And I think that every Montessorian would agree with that. Thomas Armstrong is a psychologist and an educator, and he works on bringing the principles of neurodiversity to the classroom. He does not work specifically with Montessori schools, um, or at least had not um, as of a few months ago. But he uses the term niche, he borrows the term niche construction from biology. And niche construction is the way that the species acts directly upon the environment to change it, creating more favorable conditions for its survival and the passing on of its genes. And so he uses that to create the concept of positive niche construction where we directly modify the learning environment in such a way that children who are neurodiverse can thrive. And that is a, a wonderful definition in terms of its alignment with what happens in a Montessori classroom and in Montessori schools. For me, though, understanding what the term, where the term neurodiversity came from um, is very important because we need to be careful about not replacing the word disabilities with neurodiversity. So neurodiversity came from, has its roots in the autism community. Um, a woman named Judy Singer coined the term back in the 1990s, and she recognized that people who are neurodiverse were oppressed and they needed a movement of their own. So there are principles of neurodiversity, that neurodiversity is natural and valuable, that the normal brain is an invalid and culturally constructed fiction, and that social inequities exist and that they're harmful. That's the neurodiversity paradigm. What isn't known is that while many people on the autism spectrum will identify with the term neurodiversity, it is not yet clear that people of various disabilities identify with the term neurodiversity. So someone with a physical disability, with an emotional challenge, um, medical issues, children with language issues would not, at least at this point in time, would not necessarily be included under the neurodiversity umbrella. And I think it's just very important for us not to replace one term with the other because it feels comfortable to us and because it, the, the general principle aligns with what we as Montessorians believe. Um, the, the disability terms are from a medical model. Um, they can be seen as judgmental. And on the other hand, they do provide access to service. There is a structure in our country at the 
you know, district, state, and federal level to access services through the diagnosis of a disability. Um, neurodiversity does not have that structure in place. And so we need to be clear um, when we're looking for development of programs for children. Thank you, Andre. To me, that connects back to that bridge. I think that one false duality we fall into um, in Montessori settings is this child is okay or this child is not okay. Montessorians sometimes want to hold tightly to like, this child is okay, we can serve them within our classroom. And they feel like special educators are coming in and saying, this child is broken, we need to fix them. Or the alternate happens is they're like, this child is broken, they need to leave. And the special educator is like, no, 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 we can serve them in this setting. And I think that do, that, that uh, neurodiversity and disability highlights that perfectly because children are neither broken nor okay. They are who they are. And they, we have that asset-based lens that's inherent in, in neurodiversity, but we also acknowledge that they may have disabilities with their legal protections, with certain identified um, interventions that are needed. So I really appreciate you highlighting that don't replace to me, it's a both and. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, lovely. That's gonna launch us into thinking about talking with families, thinking about um, when there's a, um, a conversation that needs to happen between a Montessori school and families, what advice do each of you bring for how to navigate these? Because I think sometimes, you know, in the world of honest talk, it feels uncomfortable and it definitely feels like you're going to be telling people something hard to hear or there's something wrong or bad or we're bringing a whole lot of our own baggage into these conversations. And I'm wondering, you both thought about this quite a bit. What advice do you have for practitioners? So talking to families, all of this knowledge and structure we've talked about is so key. And when we're bringing these to families, I want to highlight two things off the bat. First is that we need to start these conversations early. We need to, as soon as we see something, as soon as we have a concern, we need to be talking to the family and asking, what do you see at home? I'm going to try this. What have you tried? What works? Um, to start that conversation and to bring them along as equal experts. They have a whole realm of knowledge about their child that you don't have, and you have a whole realm of knowledge that they don't have, so that if you can work together as equal experts, you can work together to find a solution for the child. Um, the second is using language of reverence, making sure to use that asset-based language for children, recognizing their strengths, um, using objective language instead of what might be judgment. And in that, acknowledging the family's culture and values. Families come in with different frameworks than we have. We all come into the world with our, well, we don't come into the world, but we all grow up to develop our own cultural lens and how we think about education, how we think about disability, what we expect from children at different ages. So coming into the conversation with an acknowledgement, those might be different. And having a curiosity about the family's point of view can be really helpful. Connecting with what Allison just said, um, and when you talk about going into a meeting with a checklist especially in your mind, especially the difficult meetings with parents, one um, 
notion that's really helpful um, is put forth by Anne Epstein, who is a Montessorian and a special educator. And she calls it CPR, that in every conversation with parents about a challenge that the child is having, about difficulties, um, there's some time devoted for CPR which is discussion about the family's concerns, the family's priorities, and the family's resources. And you want to know what the values are of the group of people who love and support the children, because it's not just the family who come to the meeting um, that is responsible for the growth and development of the child. Um, So in the CPR section of one of these meetings, the family does most of the talking and the guide listens. And as guides, when we're going into these meetings, we're a little nervous, we're a little uncomfortable, um, we're aware of everything that's in the environment around us, and we don't always designate some time where we will not be talking and the family will be talking because that's critical before you can um, come to consensus on what the next step might be. The other thing I wanted to um, bring into the conversation is the notion of ghosts in the classroom. And um, that comes to us from Sarah Lawrence Lightfoot, who is definitely one of one of my heroes. She um, is a sociologist. She's the first African-American woman in Harvard's history to have an endowed professorship in her honor. And she pioneered a qualitative research method called portraiture. And her body of work is on the dynamics of being human. One of her books is The Essential Conversation, What Parents and Teachers Can Learn from Each Other. And in it, she examines what takes place both consciously and unconsciously when the grown-ups sit around the table or at their screens in the service of the child. And she says that these conversations for both the school personnel and the family are unknowingly shaped by the autobiographical stories of the parents and the teachers. And she introduces us to the idea of ghosts in the classroom, the uninvited guests who join our conference. And so who are those ghosts? Well, they're rooted in our childhood experiences, and they can be people or situations that molded beliefs about ourselves as learners. And so while the ghosts are usually hidden from consciousness, when there's a discussion happening um, around some challenges a child can have, they can emerge very unexpectedly. And so Sarah gives us something called the doorknob phenomena, which I'm sure we've all experienced. The, the meeting has happened, it's over, the family's about to leave, and one member of the family puts their hand on the doorknob, they turn around and look back, and they say, and another thing. And then there's talk about, that happened to me. Um, and there could be any number of phrases that come after that. It could be, that happened to me, and... I'm so grateful that this is going to happen, 
you know, something different is going to happen to my child. It could be that happened to me and I'm not going to let this happen to my child. It could be that happened to me and see, I turned out fine. Um, I'm not sure that we need to go this next step. So we need to recognize all the voices in the room. We need to come back to the moment um, so that we can do the work in the present, but we can only do that after we acknowledge what it is that has happened in the past. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I love that you're um, expanding Montessori whole child to whole human, like we're looking at the families and the the school-based staff as bringing their whole selves to this and to be able to acknowledge that, have that be part of the conversation as constructive next steps with the lens tightly on the child, right? So what do we need to do as adults in order to um, disperse and dispel the past enough to support the children before us? This was a wonderful conversation, just full of rich resources. Um, And Andre mentioning, um, and I'm going to put a link to the inclusion book on the website um, for people that want to read more on this topic. There's many delightful chapters, including one by Andre herself that's edited by Anne Epstein um, that pulls together some resources for thinking about how Montessori and special education can work strongly together. Do either of you have any closing thoughts before we finish? Thank you. I'm so glad we are all in this work in service of the children in our schools and in our lives. And this may or may not be part of the broadcast, but this morning while I was thinking about what was going to happen here and what my entree to Montessori was and you know what my favorite Montessori book is, but then I started thinking about what my favorite article is and it brings me back to Jackie Cosentino, who is how I am connected to both of you and her article about ritualizing expertise, which was one of my first reads, which said to me, you may not be a trained Montessorian. It will look different for you. But this is a world that is um, open and um, ready for you to enter and um, you will be welcome. And um, for me, that, that was magic. That, that was the moment when I knew that, okay, I was shifting paths and this, was, this is where I'd been headed all along. So um, being on the screen with the three of you, I, I just want to honor Jackie in our conversation. I love that we went from ghosts in the classroom to ghosts in the Montessori community and that you said three of the three of us because Jackie is here and was here when we said what's going on with this child and through the whole conversation as we're talking about how we can serve all children through Montessori education. Thank you both so much for taking the time to be on Montessori in Action podcast and share your thoughts and ideas. Much appreciated. Our show is a project of Public Montessori in Action, elevating voices in the community to forward the mission. Our host is Elizabeth Slade. Our producer is Isaac Price Slade. If you enjoyed this episode, consider subscribing and sharing it with others. 
You can find us wherever you get your podcasts.